Good morning. I want to welcome you here, Northwest Community Church. Glad that you guys are here. We're going to jump right in to John chapter 6. That's where we've been. You, you've been with us for the last three weeks. This is our third week in the message series called Gospel Transformation. And we desire to see what the gospel does in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. We've been walking through the gospel of John with select passages a couple of weeks ago. We took a look at Nicodemus. And we saw him as a confused minister, thinking that he was good with God because he was a minister, he was a Jew, and he was trying to live by those 613 laws that you're supposed to be living by. And Jesus came to him and shattered everything that he believed and said, no, you must be born again. And that radically changed him. And he went from confusion to having a relationship with Christ, as we see in the the end of the book. And then, of course, we look at the woman at the well who uh, was looking for love in all of the wrong places. We see that she came to the well, she met Jesus, he addressed the wounds that she had in her life. She dropped her water jars, went back to the city that shunned her, and she told them about this man who told her all he had ever done. And it says in the text that many believed because of her testimony. I don't know about you, but that is something to have said about us, is many believed because of your testimony or her testimony. And so this week we're going to jump in and take a look at a needy crowd. A needy crowd. There's a bunch of people who are following Jesus. There's a needy crowd and, and he comes and he feeds them. People say, oh, it's 5,000 men. It's actually 12,000 total people. We'll take a look at that when we get there. Yesterday I do need to tell you that one of the greatest motivations to get your sermon done early is when someone calls you at 9 o'clock and says, I have a ticket. And there was a game last night. Just saying, there was a crowd last night, and I was a part of that crowd, and it was a happy crowd. Go ahead, John chapter 6. <laughs> Those of you that don't know, UNC beat Duke last night for the second time, amen. Um, John, John 20, 21. John 20, 21. And I want to remind you of this verse. Everything that we see in this book right here comes back to this verse because this verse shares us the reason. This verse right here tells us why in the world do we have these stories? Why do we have these encounters and not those encounters? There are many encounters that we don't know about, but we, are, we do look at the text and we see that there are many encounters that we do see. There's many gospel transformation stories that we're aware of that we can read about and that we can explain, that we can pray about, we can be encouraged by. And John 20, 21 says, this is why you haven't, but these are written. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why we have these encounters. So that we will be encouraged to know that the God that did these things can still do these things today. And it's important for us to see that in today. Because sometimes the negativity comes up in our lives that we choose to see what he's not doing as opposed to what he is doing. And John is saying, listen to me, I'm the same then as I am now. I changed lives then, and I'm going to change lives now. I want you to be a part of it with me. I want you to see it. I want you to testify to it. I want you to be encouraged by it. And so John chapter 6 is another, basically another two miracles that we're going to take a look at. But at the end of the day, what they are there for is they are there for us to be captivated, to be overwhelmed by the greatness of King Jesus. That's why they're there. So let's take a look at John 6, starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Really quick, I want to let you know something. I was reading this, and I'm like, I was there. 
I went to Israel in 2013 with my father-in-law and my mother-in-law who were tour leaders of a trip of 45 people to Israel. One of the trips that we had, we went to the Sea of Galilee. We got into a wooden boat. We went out into the middle of the sea and the tour guide who were two Messianic Jews, meaning they are Jewish and they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They were our tour guides. What a perspective it was. We sat in the middle of the boat And she pointed out and went, this is where Jesus did this. 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 And this is where Jesus did this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I think he's going to start walking on the water in a minute. Because I know he did that here too. And then he said, let's just pause and let's just worship in silence. One of the greatest moments of my life was to sit in this this sea where Jesus did all of his, where, where he did many of his miracles, where many of them took place. So that's the context right there of where we are, the Sea of Galilee. We'll talk about, more about the Sea of Galilee in a minute. Verse 2, and a large crowd, and for today's context, we're going to refer to the large crowd as the back row. They're in the back row. Why are they in the back row? In terms of their affection for Jesus. Let's take a look at why. It's the reason they were following him, that they're in the back row. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so you have to, let's go back. We haven't covered all of this. We've taken certain texts that we've looked at. And so if we go back to chapter two, we know that Jesus was at a wedding and he turned water into wine. That's right. And then if we go to the end of chapter two, there is an official's son who is lame and, and, he, and he heals him. And then there is another person who is lame. And that is, the, he's, he's by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus goes to him and, and heals him. That's in chapter five. And he says, he heals him and he does it on Sunday, which is completely against what you're supposed to be doing as part of the Jewish law. And then we know in chapter three, we have Nicodemus. And then in chapter four, we have the woman at the well. And then all of a sudden we come up to chapter six and Jesus is standing there and there's a large crowd that's following him because they're like, something's up with this guy. We're really interested. And they're on the back row. And let me just let you know something. If you're on the outside looking in, Jesus welcomes you to come. Whether you're on the front row or whether you're on the back row, he wants you to be here. And I would say this, as a part of our family, we at Northwest, wherever you are, whether you're on the front row, whether you're on the back row, we want you to be here. We want you to see all that he can do, and we want you to see all that he will do. And whether you're on the front row and seeing and close to him and being a follower of him, or whether you're on the back row, we're just glad you're here. Verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So there's 12 of them. We call that the front row. These are the ones that Jesus decided to pour his life into. There's 12 of them. And so now we go to verse 4 and it says, Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. This is one of the most critical points in this text. Probably what I would say and what others have said, that this is really the point of the text. Not necessarily the miracle of feeding over the 12,000 people or walking on water in the later part of the chapter. But here's what's going on. The Jewish people were coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover was one of the major feasts that they would be about to remember all that Jesus had done. And so if we remember, Moses had gone to Pharaoh several times and he says, let my people go. and goes to Pharaoh and and, and that doesn't happen. He refused to release the, the Israelites. And Moses warned Pharaoh that God would send plagues and he really sent 10 plagues. There were hail and boils and darkness. And, and the last plague, the 10th one, was the death of the firstborn. And so 
what God told Moses to tell the Israelites was to go and to get a lamb and take that lamb and sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your home. And then what would happen is God's judgment would pass over your home. And so what they were doing is they would always come to Jerusalem at the time of Passover, which is right before Easter, to celebrate the resurrection. They would come in to celebrate what God had done and how God delivered. And John the Baptist in chapter 1, hang with me. Hey, I'm going somewhere. Chapter 1, verse 27. John the Baptist declares that Jesus is the lamb that was slain without spot or blemish. So, the Passover is happening. They're all coming in here because they know their history. This is what we celebrate, that God provided for us. And here's Jesus. He's standing there, and he's doing water into wine, and he's healing people by the sea, and he's, and he's going to provide bread. He's going to provide food for everybody to eat. Why? Because he's declaring he is the Lamb of God. He is the final sacrifice, that there is no one other than him, that that is him. And that's what we celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. That's our way to remember what Jesus came to do. So John 1, 27, behold, Jesus, John, they have to interest him. Jesus, with the title, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is who he is. And that's who he's coming in. And so the Passover feast is bringing all these people in to celebrate this. And he's like, oh, I'm going to demonstrate to you that I am truly the Lamb of God. And so verse Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd, these are the back row people, not sure who Jesus was, they're intrigued by him, was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now listen, we're talking about the king of kings and lord of lords. This is not a question that he needs the answer to. It's basically the question that you ask your high school students, where they've been when you already know the answer. Where were you tonight? What were you doing? He knows the answer to this. He knows the answer to Philip. What he's asking Philip to do is he's trying to, hey, Philip, what I want you to confirm is that there's no possible way that, we can, that these people can eat. And Jesus is going, I got you right where I want you. Because see, Philip is from this area. He knows where it would be to go and get bread. He's from this area. So Philip basically goes to him and says, Jesus asks, where, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And verse 8, 6 says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Just like in the Garden of Eden when God asked Adam, Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. He's giving him a chance to repent in that situation here he's looking at Philip and going, just want you to confirm. I want to know where you are from your faith, and I want to know what you believe. Verse 7, Philip answered, and he said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to, each of them to get little. 200 denarii is an average day's worker for, a, for an average worker. It's an average year-long salary. So for, if you're looking at 200 denarii, that's your salary for the year. And if you were to take that money, that money would not be enough to feed all of the people that are coming at us right now. There's no way that these people can eat. We're not, we don't have any place to go and get enough food to feed them. We don't have it. Jesus is like, you're right, we don't. 
verse 8. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, verse 9, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So the other gospels, let me make sure you understand, this this feeding of the 5,000, or I believe feeding of the 12,000, what most people say, this is in all of the other gospels. It's one of the miracles that is in in all four. And if you look at the other gospels, what what was told is that Andrew was told to go around and see if they had any food. Andrew was supposed to go do sort of do recon mission. So what do we have? What can we, how much food do people have? I mean, is there like a pack of nabs in their, in their side pocket over there or something? I mean, what do we have? What are we dealing with here? And so I love what one commentator said. So Andrew comes back from his recon mission and goes, hey, I got this little boy right here. He's got, he's got a lunchable. That's what one pastor said. He's got a lunchable. And then he goes, ah, but that's not enough. So there's 12,000 people, and there is a lunchable. Verse 10, he said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and about 5,000 in number. So that's how we know that there's more, because there's 5,000 men. But when you, do the, when you add it up and look at other Gospels, it, it, the number is, is, is pretty close to 12,000 people, men, women, and children. And so what did he do? He said, I want you to gather together. I want you to sit down in this grassy area, and I'm just going to do some incredible things. So we got 12,000 people. we got five loaves of bread, and we got two fish. Verse 11, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated so also the fish as much as they wanted. Look at this. As much as they wanted. Underline that, circle that, don't forget that. That's what Jesus does in your life. And I don't care about the circumstances. I do care about the circumstances. I, but, but what it's saying is, is that regardless of the circumstances, Jesus does just that. He gave them as much as they wanted. In verse 12 it says, and when they had eaten their fill, can you just imagine I'm imagining a ribeye steak cooked medium with mashed potatoes and green beans. And I'm like, I'm done. And that is unbelievable. I am full. Here he is sitting at the table right now. And that's, that's what they have. They're sitting on that grassy knoll. When they eaten their full, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So here he is. He's got 12 baskets. Don't miss this. He's got 12 disciples. He's got 12 baskets. And he's saying, I want you to get a basket and I want you to fill it full of fragments because I don't want you to ever forget who I am. I don't want you to miss who I am. And I want you to sit there and see this large crowd that's coming. We have no way to provide for them food. And I want you to take a basket and I want you to keep filling it. And they had their baskets and it was full of fragments. It's a great reminder. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And I think Jesus is like, what does a God have to do around here? Like, what is it? Sometimes we say, what does a man have to do around here to get any respect? Here is Jesus looking at him and going, well, Nicodemus called me rabbi the teacher. The woman at the well started off and she said, oh, you're a prophet. Now we look at the crowd and the crowd looks at him and says, hmm, you're a prophet. You're doing some pretty cool things right now. You're just simply a prophet. Jesus catches on to that knowing that his time had not yet come. We see that all throughout the Gospels. 
Jesus knew his time. He was sovereignly submitting to his time about what God was going to do and, and show that he was the lamb. So what did Jesus do in verse 15? It says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. And so you have to understand that what the people were looking for was this mighty soldier that would free them from this Roman bondage. We've said that several times. And that's what they were looking for in this, this, this guy. They certainly were looking for this mighty king, maybe riding in on a white horse, possibly being able to do this and do that. And so they looked at him and said, oh, that, that's him. He's the one that's going to free you from this Roman bondage. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to the mountain right now. I'm going to go retreat. You don't understand really truly who I am. Here's a quote for you right there. I'm going to read this to you. Pastor says, think about this. What kind of king dies for the peasants? Is it not in human history the peasants who die for the king? It's Christianity alone that says, no, no, no. The king of kings, the lord of lords, actually goes out and dies so that you won't have to. In fact, he goes out to make provision for you. You don't make provision for him. And so that's the kind of king that we're serving. That's the kind of king he's demonstrating who he is. That's the kind of king we serve each and every day right here at this place. And then he says, he goes away to get alone, which I think is a great, great lesson for us. I won't have any time to camp out on that, but that's a good place to go, is to get alone with King Jesus and really reflect on who he is and being reminded of who he is. The Gospels are full of story after story. The Bible is full of story after story of how he came to redeem. Verse 16 says this. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. So here's what just took place. I want to make sure you see this. We just saw Jesus feed over 12,000 people. 12,000 people. That's what just took place. Jesus goes up to the mountain. The the disciples then, the front row disciples, they go get into a boat and they start leaving and they get into a storm. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level and the, the the mountains along the coastline, coastline in some places are two to 3,000 feet in elevation. So you could be sitting in the middle of Galilee in this, in this boat and you could be going to the other side and it'd be beautifully, beautifully sunny and the weather be great and then all of a sudden this storm comes in and settles down on the ocean causing white caps, causing very, a lot of turmoil. It is said that a lot of them, some of them were fishermen and they were really scared of the Sea of Galilee because of all of the storms that would come up and be stirred up and the difficulty of getting from one side to the other so what does it say it says that they jumped into the boat and they were going to the other side verse 19 when they had rowed about three or four miles and this was done in about six hours they saw jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened but he said to them it is i do not be afraid he looks at the inner circle And what is he continuing to do? He's continuing to teach them about who he is. And that's what he does in our life. He continually teaches us who he is. Verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And when they took Jesus into the boat and he told them to calm down, he told them to relax. 
What is it that took place? And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Because that's what Jesus does. He calms us, he calms the storm, and he gets us to the place that he wants us to go in his timing. In his timing. And it summarizes everything. Everything is summarized by verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here's what he does. There are seven I am statements in the gospel of John. If we go back into Exodus, God appears before Moses. And he tells Moses what he should do. And Moses asks the question, well, who, should I sell, who should I tell them that sent me? And God says, you tell them I am that I am. That's what he said. Meaning, I am Yahweh. I am God. You tell him that that's who sent you. Jesus, being in the Gospel of John, is trying to declare to him that he is the Messiah. That he is, that Jesus is the Messiah. And he uses that phrase that God used to Moses. And he looks at him and he says, I am the bread of life. There are seven I am statements. There's, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And all of those are a massive declaration, knowing his audience of his, of his deity. You're not just serving a man. You're not just serving a prophet. You're not just serving a rabbi. You are, ser- you are being talked to. You are being instructed. You are being led by King Jesus. That's who you're being led by. And he uses these powerful words in this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes, look at that verb. Whoever comes to me should not hunger. And the next one, and whoever believes. Those are strong, strong verbs. And we are invited to come. We're invited to believe. What an unbelievable invitation. Now, all of that, what are our lessons? Number one, following Jesus for the wrong reasons will yield wrong conclusions. Following Jesus for the wrong reasons will yield wrong conclusions. Chapter uh, 6, 1 through 4, look at verse 2. It says, following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Why were they following? Because of the signs. They were following him because of what he can do, and it was completely out of balance. Verse 14, verse 14, what happens? They're following him, and they say, oh, you know what? We see this. Here he is. He's a prophet. This is indeed a prophet. Let me make sure a statement for you. When we follow a made-up definition of Jesus, we will never encounter the majesty that he has and is deserved. When we follow a made-up definition of Jesus, then we will never encounter the majesty that he is so deserved. We will constantly be disappointed. We will constantly be incomplete. And we will be led to this strong, strong, uh, and incomplete faith. When we see all that he, things that he does, not just for who he is, we will, have, we will have a complete and lacking, a growing faith in who he is. The back row followers are fearfully and wonderfully made, and Jesus wants them to come in, but he doesn't want them to come in with a faulty description or definition of who he is because it'll lead to really bad theology really bad theology one commentator said this he says if jesus was talking he would say the true followers do not chase me for my miracles but follow me because i am worthy of their faith and devotion of their life true followers do not chase me for my miracles but follow me because i am worthy of their faith and devotion of their life so what is he doing with these miracles 
What is he doing with the miracles? And what is he trying to do to the back row? What is he trying to do even with us in the front row? What is, he, he's trying to let us know very clearly. That, guys, listen to me. I'm not a genie in a bottle. I'm not your puppet. He is, the, he is King Jesus. He is holy. He is God. He's the bread of life. And most importantly, he is who John the Baptist declared he was. And that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who he is. And he wants to make sure that that's very clear to them. So following Jesus for the wrong reasons will yield wrong conclusions. Second thing I want you to see, faith and doubt are normal. And Jesus knows this, so be encouraged. Faith and doubt are normal, and Jesus knows this, so be encouraged. Verses five, Jesus had a strategy to pour his life into the 12 people. Okay, remember, remember. If we take a look at this and we say, Jesus went after these 12, he went after these disciples. He poured everything into them. He said, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you this. You're not this, but I'll make you into this. But that's transformation. That is gospel transformation. That's what takes place. I'm gonna make you into something you are not. Just follow me. And he's taking them, and he's spending time with them, and he's giving grace to them, and he is being patient with them. And I, for one, am so grateful because he does the same thing with us. And so what does he, what does he do right now? Well, I think it's really important for us to see some important things about faith in the front line of his disciples, really to encourage us and hopefully to challenge us. Let's go back to Philip for a minute. Philip, where are we gonna get bread? Okay, there is a, there is a snowstorm coming in Cary and all the bread leaves the grocery store. You know what I'm talking about. There's the threat of a storm and it's all gone. And here is Philip who has seen Jesus do unbelievable things. He just saw water turned into wine. He just saw Jesus heal people. He is now sitting here faced with an unbelievable obstacle with a bunch of people that are coming to a festival and there is no food. And Philip just looks at him and says, oh my gosh, there's, if, if, we have got, we, if we have an average worker who gives 200 denarii, that's not enough money to feed all these people. He has unbelievable doubt, just like you and me. Unbelievable doubt right sitting right there. Philip's doubt, to me, is very obvious. He's not trying to cover it up. Andrew, on the other side, it's a little less obvious because here's what takes place in Andrew's life. Andrew had, had faith for a second. Let me show you this right now. Verse eight and nine, it said, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy over here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Ha, stop right there. That's a little bit of faith, okay? You see that faith right there? You know, I just went around and I took a look right now. There's a lot of people around here, but hey, listen, I got this Lunchable, okay? And, and there, there's a chance. And then all of a sudden, there's a comma in the sentence and he goes, ah, but it will work. And, and we chuckle and we laugh, but that's us. Right? We're sitting there going, God can change my life. Oh, I'm so terrible. God can give me a brand new job. Oh my gosh, he, he's not gonna trust me to do that. God can heal my marriage. Oh my gosh, no. I don't see it possible. He's not gonna change her. So we go from faith and then we go from doubt and we're in the same sentence and Jesus is looking at us and he's telling, he's telling us, because he told Philip and he, because he told Andrew and because he told the disciples, relax. I want you to be encouraged. I'm here to sanctify you. I'm here to clean you up. I realize that you're going to have faith and you're going to doubt in the same sentence. And you do that because you're human. 
And that's what humans do. That's what we do. And so what is he doing? I'm coming to transform your life with the gospel. Initially, I did that when you said yes to me. And I'm going to continually to do that when you say yes to me every day. And that's what he's doing right here. Right here to Andrew. When Andrew demonstrates to us, it's like a resume. It's like our testimony. When we see that he has faith, I got this launchable. Nah, it won't be enough. So what is God trying to do in us? What is, he trying to, what is he trying to reconcile in us? He's trying to get us to be able to say that God is good and God will provide and God is faithful and make an exclamation point right there. There will be times that we will do that and there will be times that we will not. And what happens, he doesn't leave us nor forsake us. He's right there to just to keep going each and every day to give us the grace that we need to carry on, to press on, and to realize that he's good and he's great and he satisfies the disciples, what did they do? Disciples are in the boat. So here's what happens. You got all of disciples. Philip and Andrew are part of that. They're in the boat. They get in the boat. Jesus is not with them. They start paddling out. All of a sudden, the wind starts kicking up. The storm is raging. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're afraid. One of the gospels says they, they John says that Jesus, they see Jesus coming. One of, the, one of the gospels said that they thought it might be a ghost. It was dark. At any point in this right now, they're in a very difficult situation and it says that they are frightened. And what does Jesus come to do when they are frightened? He comes and he says, hey, I want you to breathe. Inhale, exhale. I just want you to breathe. Why? Because I'm here. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I am for my glory. That's what he's declaring. I am for my glory, and I am most glorified when you are most satisfied. That's what he's shouting to him. That's what he's shouting to us. He's screaming that. He's yelling that. He's saying, yes, you on this side of things right now, you are human, and you have a sin nature. You've been forgiven by God, and you're following Jesus the best you can, but you know you're going to have some waves in your life, and I'm just coming to you to let you know that I'm the lamb, that I'm the bread, and that I'm the water, and, and that you must be born again. I don't want you to forget that. So I just want you to breathe. I just want you to be encouraged. I just want you to settle down. I'm here. You know, there's certain times you sit there and go, well, well, how in the world do we live in a daily routine where we sit there and we go, how, how can we live in ways where the sentence or the paragraph has a lot of faith and not doubt? How do we live in such a way like that? I think it goes back to living among the spirit of God. We've talked about that a hundred times a year. Let me just tell you this right now, how God encouraged my soul this week to, to allow, to fill me up with faith and allow me not to doubt because those doubt, doubting arrows come in all the time. You know, we have those things. You're not good enough or this or whatever the case might be. You should have done this. You shouldn't have done that. Should have said this, shouldn't have done that. You got all kinds of arrows of doubt. So I'm sitting at the Y this week and I had gotten through working out. I'm leaving the Y and I see this man, and I, I recognize him, and he is Christy Baker's father, Kevin. Also, Kevin and Kate, his son, goes here. I see this man, and I walk up to him, and I said, hey, you're Christy Baker's dad. And he says, yes, I am. Who are you? He's got a cane in his hand. He's walking in. He's got, like, a Bible or something in this hand. looks like a Bible. He comes up, and I said, uh, well, I'm Matt Rice. I go to church with Kevin and Christy and Dan and Kate. I go to, I go to church with them. And he's like, oh. I've been there before. He said, so what do you do over at the church? 
I was like, well, I'm, I'm the teaching pastor at the church. And he says, well, I probably heard you before. And he says, right here, right now, I'm going to pray for you. Right here, right now. What am I going to pray for you about? Uh, you got a pencil, pencil and a piece of paper? I'm sitting here going, what? Why, uh, well, yeah. Um, I gave him some things. And he just, just had his Bible in this hand, his cane in this hand, and put his hand on my shoulder. And I'm telling you, he prayed Jesus all over my life. And I want to tell you what it did to my faith. It encouraged my soul. And what had happened in those moments, and what happens in moments like that, is it allows faith to be bigger than the doubt. It gets even better. I mean, he, he prayed, and I was like, he said, well, we'll see you. You have a great day. Thank you for letting me pray over you. I literally walked 50 feet from the checkout table to the front door. I ran into another friend. He's a landscaper. He was in there getting a coffee and, a, and some kind of uh, muffin or something like that. And he looked at me and he goes like this and he says, Hey, I've been, I've been thinking about you. I've been, I've, been, I've been thinking about you. What's going on in your life? We caught up. We talked. And he says, Right here, I'm going to pray over you. I said, You're kidding. I was like, oh no. He said, he just laid his hands on my shoulder and he just shouted to Jesus in the entrance to the Y and asked God's protection on my life and for my faith to grow and for me to be a leader and for me to be a follower and for me to lead my family. I mean, I'm telling you the truth. I left there and I went, praise Jesus. I feel like all you have to do is come back right now. I mean, like, that's the only thing better right now. I went 50 feet. I went 50 feet. And the Pray for me. So what is my lesson here right now? Listen to me. Listen to me. We have faith and we doubt and it's in the same sentence. And I'm begging for us to be led by the Spirit so that God's Spirit can direct us to each other as a family and we can wrap each other up and say, I know you're doubting who he is. I know you're doubting his goodness, but I'm asking you in Jesus' name, hold this brother up. Hold him up. Because we wrestle with this on a daily basis. And Jesus is looking at Andrew. Jesus is looking at Philip. Jesus is looking at the boat and going, I see you. I see your doubt. I'm okay, I'm okay with it. Because I'm going to sanctify you and I'm going to clean you up. And how does he do that? He puts people around us to sit there and wrap us up and pray for us. Three times, two times at the Y in 50 feet. To do what? Hold us up with his righteous right hand because he's so good. And that's what he does. So be aware this week of those that might be saying paragraphs and sentences that have faith and doubt in the same grammatical sentence. And lay your hand on their shoulder and in Jesus' name you pray for them. And you ask God to give you the words that how you might encourage them. Because after all, we're humans. We need to hold each other up for the glory and the fame of his name. The last one is Jesus satisfies. Here's a quote for you. At the root of our dissatisfaction is a never-ending thirst that nothing in the world can satisfy. We've been duped into thinking that a better job, more money, co cooler friends, another spouse, and a new life is all really what we need. And if we can't obtain any of these things, or when they leave us dissatisfied, we resort to drug abuse, sexual immorality, or a senseless entertainment. May that not be said about us. So let us remember that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who he was prophesied. That's what he came to do. He was coming into, pa he was coming into Passover because he was the Lamb. 
he used the illustration of being bread because he had just fed 12,000, but ultimately, he truly is the Lamb of God. Let these verses right now just encourage you. I'm gonna read some verses just over us right now. Let these verses encourage you. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's John 6, 35, as we read. Psalm 107, 9. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Psalm 22, verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Psalm 16, 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. True followers are made in a moment, but they are proven over a lifetime. And what God is desiring to do in us is to take us, to convince us, to show us that he truly is the great satisfaction that we need in our life. Listen to me, if you're on the back row, not to point you out, but if you're on the back row and you're just following because you're not really sure who he is, but there's something about him, I'm asking you right now, to come and believe and to feast at the table. He's the bread of life. He's the lamb of God. I'm asking you right now to repent and believe. I would ask you to do it right now in the next song, but I'd ask you not even to go to sleep tonight. I might even ask you that God would make you miserable until you make that decision to say, I wanna be a follower of you. If you're playing games, I'm asking you to stop. He is the true satisfaction of our soul and there is no comparison. And if we're following him, and we are doubting at times in the same sentence, then I would say, I just want you to be encouraged. But don't be content. Keep coming to the table where the bread is served. Keep feasting off of what he offers. And finally, I would close with this point by John Piper, a quote that's been very prominent about this topic. It is, God, he is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And we have said back in January that the hallowedness of God's name is what we are here to be about. Remember, we went through the Lord's prayer and it said, our Lord who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The glory of God, the hallowedness of his holy name, declaring he is holy, declaring he is good, declaring that he is everything. That's the purpose by which we exist. And he says, he, when he is most glorified, then we are most satisfied. Let us live for his glory. Let us feast from the bread that he gives. And let us live with paragraphs of faith. Paragraphs of faith, not doubt. I love you. Let's pray. God, I love you and I'm so grateful for you. May you be glorified in all that we say and do today. I thank you for our worship team who's gonna come and lead us in these next two songs. I'm praying that you would be honored by how we live our lives. We look today, God, to be challenged. We look to be rebuked. We look to, be, uh, sub to submit to your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we beg you right now to help us to have that faith with shorter seasons of doubt. That is a difficult place. So we're asking your spirit to invade that place in our lives. Help us to see what you are doing, not what you are not doing. And may we 
live our lives as those who are satisfied in you, regardless of our situation or circumstance. It is all for your glory, and we know for our good. So thank you for our satisfaction being only in you. We declare that to you today, and we sing that about you. In Jesus' name, amen.